1: I want to get to an old friend of mine, one of my old favorite guests um, with whom I, uh, whom I haven't spoken with since, uh, since I moved here, Bill Rhodes joins us. He used to be the chairman of city and, um, he wrote the book banker to the world, which I read, uh, when I was a young buck in my thirties. And then Kathleen Hayes introduced us. I was, uh, I was starstruck a bit, but, um, I've gotten to know him, uh, Bill, thanks so much for, for joining us. It's been, it's been too long. Um, let me ask your take, first of all, on the situation we find ourselves in now. It's so different than, you know, last time I spoke to you, Donald Trump um, hadn't even been elected. And uh, central bank balance sheet, well, the Fed balance sheet was was only only at four and a half trillion dollars. And, you know, we weren't looking at any kind of stimulus beyond the hundreds of billions we had in TARP. Now we're looking at seven and a half trillion from the central bank or in the, the on the Fed balance sheet, and four and a half trillion now six and a half trillion in stimulus. Um, what does that mean to you?
2: Well, first of all, Matt, it's great to uh, be talking to you again after so long a time, and uh, congratulations on your family uh, situation, the father, and all of that. Uh, I think uh, when you take a look at the Fed balance sheet uh, before the Great Recession, it was eight hundred uh, billion. It went to four 4.5 point five uh, point Seven. Uh, then they started tapering down And now it's 7.5 as you point out To 8 Plus we have massive stimulus uh, on, the, uh, on the on the physical side With this new stimulus bill Of, a, of, a, of a 1.9 trillion And so I think This is being replicated Also in Europe, in China In Japan And uh, I think we're revving up the world economy And the U.S. is supposed to grow at least 6% This year, some people I think six and a half, seven. Some even say eight uh, percent. China six to eight uh, percent. Europe is a laggard. But my concern is we're seeing uh, this tremendous search and reach for yield uh, that every time I've seen before causes problems because eventually the Fed is going to have to tighten, and the rest of the central banks of the world will have to. And when you see tightening, that means rates going up uh, because you have a inflation starting to move from where it's been so low for the last few years. Uh, So my concern is where we're going to be two years from now uh, if the Fed doesn't start taking measures at some point in time.
0: So, Bill, how concerned are you? How concerned should we be about this debt we are taking on? I mean, we always talk about it, and somebody's got to pay it back, Mm -hmm. our kids, our grandchildren. When does it become a real fundamental problem in your mind?
2: Well, I think right now the the government is doing what it has to do, and I'm a big admirer of Janet Yellen. Uh, She's a friend, and, uh, you know, for the moment that's fine, but I think we have to be realistic. If we continue this for another year, 18 months, I think we could get ourselves in a real difficult situation. Already the People's Bank of China is talking about tapering down because they are in a bubble on the real estate area, and they've moved their uh, estimates for this year's growth from eight to six percent because they realize they have to start cutting back the real danger is that we don't cut back and two years from now we face a real real problem with another blow up
1: well, i wonder about um, what what the poorer countries are looking at I mean, we talk a lot about obviously america cuz we live there or in the or the west because we live there but you cut your teeth in latin america um, you, you ran uh, the bank's business in LATAM and, and Africa. And what do you think about these economies that have it so much worse? What's going to happen to them? And is this inequality that already is there going to grow even further?
2: That's one of my biggest concerns, Matt, because and I just came out with a piece this morning on vaccines for debt, uh, because I am so concerned that there is not the financing to really – uh, purchase from the pharmaceutical companies enough vaccines to, inoc- <clears throat> to inoculate the emerging markets, Latin America, Africa, parts of Southeast Asia. And uh, so the, uh, the, the emerging markets, uh, you know, always catch a cold here after we sneeze, because what happens is that interest rates tend to go up. They have a lot of foreign currency debt. Uh, they have problems. Uh, you know, paying back. Uh, just think of Latin American debt crisis when Volcker raised yep. interest rates in 80, 81, 82, and the Asian financial crisis in the 90s. In other words, I've seen this movie with different subtitles too many times. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, uh, the powers that be at the Fed and on the fiscal side, both here, Europe, uh, China, as I said, already is talking about cutting back some in Japan, do so because the ones that will suffer the most, particularly after this horrendous uh, uh, you know, COVID vaccine problem that you're you're facing with a pandemic in the emerging world. I think too little attention is being given to financing these countries to buy the, the pr- a proper purchase of vaccines.
1: Well, and yeah. I just want to make the point that it's not just that they're poorer and worse off. It's not just that they're uh, struck by this disease and, and, and people die and it's a human tragedy, Bill, but obviously... Um that leads to social unrest, the likes of which you 've witnessed you know all too often. that leads to problems for the entire world so it 's not just localized say Venezuela gets hit hard, which they 're definitely likely to do it's not just venezuela 's problem it's everyone's problem
2: without a doubt, if we do not take care of uh, supplying the funding or uh, be it through COVAX or whatever program, World Bank and Air American Development Bank or my suggestion of debt for vaccines, the already uh, problem economies of the emerging markets are going to get horrendous. So I am most concerned.
0: Bill, talk to us about uh, your plan for vaccines and, and debt for vaccines. What Just give us a sense of what, that, what, what you mean by that.
2: Well, uh, I helped put together the original schemes of uh, debt for equity, uh, when the Latin American debt crisis took place. And then years later, you had debt for nature. Uh, you know, uh, you had uh, also uh, debt for health. And, and basically what it is is the pharmaceutical companies agree to accept uh, local currency debt uh, to provide the vaccines. And then they take uh, the local currency either invested in the country, uh, if they have, a, if they have uh, an operation there, or they sell it to somebody on the open market, or they just decide to keep it. And this will, I think, uh, also enlarge the program of COVAX, which the G20 government's put forward, and the work of the international financial institutions. But we've got to do it now. We can't just wait, because, as we all know, uh, we may cover uh, you know, vaccines here in the United States and in Europe and in China and Japan, but the world is... Uh, is now in a situation like it wasn't in, uh, you know, in 1918, 19 and, and, and 20, in the sense of travel, and if you have this problem exist in one part of the world, it'll migrate to another. So we must look at this as an international problem, not just as a domestic problem, and uh, that's what really concerns me here.
0: All right, Bill. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate that. As always, it's great to check up with you, check in with you, get your latest thoughts, particularly as it relates to Latin America. Bill's got so much experience there. Bill Rhodes, he's the president and CEO of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors, former chairman of Citibank. And Matt, I love talking to Bill. Uh, Mm -hmm. His perspective is just extraordinary. His experience is is unparalleled.
1: And we really get some wisdom love yes. The book, Bankers of the World. Uh, I can't recommend reading that enough. And he also wrote an op ed with Stuart McIntosh, um, who heads the G30. You can check that out on project syndicate.org. Yeah, and he, he
0: just brings up a, a really key issue about Latin America trying to, and, and emerging markets in general, uh, trying to get them uh, their uh, doses.
1: Let's talk about something near and dear to my heart, and that is tacos. Do you have I tacos love- in Germany? Um, I mean, I make tacos almost <laughs> on a weekly basis, so okay. it's not super easy to get um, everything you need for it, but um, I've got a specialty food store. Uh, oddly, it's an American food store, and I guess tacos should be considered Mexican. <laughs> I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Let's ask somebody who knows. Who Jason Capasola joins us, the CEO of Del Taco. Um, Jason, let me first start by asking what the pandemic was like for for you and your franchisees, and, and what the outlook? Um, what's the outlook now? Hey, well, thanks. Sorry, for John, having me John, today. Uh, John, John. I didn't mean to call you Jason. I quite all
3: right. I wasn't going to. I was going to correct you, but I, I'll take it. Don't um, just roll with it. You know,
1: if I say yeah. something wrong, you can correct me. John we'll Capasola, Jr.
3: All right. Well, I'll take it. Um, let me tell, talk about the pandemic a little bit. Obviously, it was a challenging operating environment for everyone. Um, we were really proud of our team here at Del Taco, our restaurant teams, our, our franchisees, our support center staff, and and really um, how we success, successfully continue to navigate through a really challenging environment that is, you know, that many of us have not had to face in our lifetime. So you know, um, we leaned into our core values and made sure our employees and guests felt comfortable through through our trusted and safe initiatives. And, and we continued to operate through our drive-throughs and our takeout capability. And we also had a, a channel in delivery, delivery that was rapidly expanding. I mean, delivery grew three to four times during the pandemic. So plenty of service modes and, and options for consumers to access the brand. We tried to take advantage of all of them, even though our dining rooms were closed down. We were able to get back to positive same-store sales growth in Q3 and Q4, Um, really saw our franchise business, which represents a larger geographic footprint for us, around 15 states, accelerate um, sequentially from Q3 to Q4 in that mid-single-digit range, and actually finished their eighth consecutive year of positive same-store sales growth. So from an Outlook perspective, when I look at 2021, we talk about continuing to grow our same-store sales and our AUVs through our five drivers of, of acceleration that we've outlined and, and um, having modest, you know, restaurant contribution, margin expansion, um, it, that'll, that'll lead to EBITDA growth in 2021.
0: John, talk to us. I know you have a lot of exposure to the state of California and California is really aggressive in shutting down restaurants. So I'm guessing that was good news for, you know, the Del Tacos of the world, you know, fast food or drive-through business. Talk to us how much that was a a tailwind for you
3: during the pandemic, and and to what extent will that be a headwind going forward? Sure, yeah, there, there's definitely puts and takes in regards to that dynamic. And California, where we have a heavy operating footprint, clearly it was very restrictive. And, and we saw, um, as we talked about on our earnings call, uh, markets in California or counties in California that were very restrictive, where we're, we were still running on the company side of the house, negative same-store sales in Q4. And, and despite that, we were able to overcome through performance in all of our other markets, um, you know, positive same-store sales in q on the company business, and uh, clearly as I stated, franchise has been very positive for some time now over a broader geographic footprint so so we, we feel good about how we're positioned moving forward. Listen, there there will be a, a dynamic shift here as as um, obviously vaccines get out and guests feel a lot more comfortable getting back out and about and being more active. And, 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 and we think that that's a good thing overall. I mean, when you think about um, folks returning to school on a more regular basis, day in, day out, going to work, you know, movie theaters opening back up normal activities starting to happen in the environment around us that is a great thing for all restaurants and specifically for quick service restaurants i think about that from a standpoint of value and convenience i mean the convenience that people need when they're on the go is is pervasive in our category we deliver on that and then obviously Mm. um, guests always need good value so i think we're well positioned
1: well i wonder how um you know, how sticky the behavior we've learned through the pandemic is going to be after. You have a new store design, Fresh Flex, which I guess um, takes advantage of a a pandemic situation, right? It's it's much easier to drive through. You've got two lanes. Um, It's much easier to have third-party delivery. You've got a special um, area for that, a station for third-party pickup. Is this going to stick? Do you think Fresh Flex is going to be um, more successful in places than your typical and your traditional restaurant.
3: Listen, I, I think that it it needs to be a portfolio pro- approach, and and the great thing about, or the silver lining, I should say, that occurred through this pandemic is that guests really and consumers figure it out. They 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 uh, you know adopted technology use technology to access the brands that they love where they could. And um, certainly with the growth in delivery and off-premise in our category, that was pretty um, evident. So Fresh Flex uh, definitely takes advantage of that and integrates technology well throughout our prototypes. But the bigger piece is as we lean in towards franchise growth across the country, um, we'll, we'll be able to offer our active developers really a portfolio menu of venues initiative that we call it, where you can build restaurants from 1,200-square-foot from right. drive through only buildings all the way up to a standard build-out dining room. And um, that gives you more access to real estate and gives you the opportunity to be a bit more entrepreneurial in the way that you're thinking about build-outs. And we think that matches the environment from a consumer and a real estate perspective.
0: Hey, John, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your thoughts here. John Capasola, Jr., CEO of Del Taco. That's a publicly traded company on NASDAQ. Great symbol. (laughs) T-A-C-O. You know, we talked last hour about the taco uh, business. Now we're talking barbecue, and the reason we're talking barbecue is because the great state of Texas is reopening fully today. No mask mandate anymore. What does that mean for business and life in Texas, and what better place to talk about it than Lexington, Texas? We're going to talk to Carrie Bexley. Carrie is the owner of Snow's. Barbecue, some infamous, famous barbecue Lexington, Texas. I looked at my Google Maps, uh Matt, and again, Lexington, Texas is literally equidistant between Austin, Texas and College Station. So uh just extraordinary. Carrie, thanks so much for joining us here. I'd love to get your thoughts on what the reopening move in your state of Texas, what that's gonna mean for your business.
4: Well, we're we're taking it pretty slow. We're kinda skeptical of a few things and again hopefully blessed to get back to normal activities at some point but uh uh, again we're just kind of taking it slow and and few changes at a time
1: i'm worried about your pit master tootsie is uh well she's got to be 84 85 years old and she's got to be one of the most famous pit masters now in the world how she's how she survived through covid
4: well she's continued to kind of operate at normal again uh the social distancing and the mask wearing she's done that and again a lot of our reactions uh stems from her and a couple other employees that are including myself that are on up in age but uh she's she's doing great she's uh like you said she's 85 will be 86 here i think in april and uh man we we just want to clone her and and find <laughs> some more that can can keep keep going like she does but uh Again, that's a reason we're like I said, some of our precautions we're just taking it slow and not just gonna flip the switch overnight and, and drop all our guards. So how's it how's it uh, gonna
1: work, Carrie? I mean, you only open on Saturdays anyway, so you gotta worry about one day a week. You open I guess eight ish eight o'clock, right? Do you tell people correct. they have to stay uh, you know, six feet away from each other? Are you only letting people in with masks even though they're allowed to come in without a mask? Like what are you doing?
4: Uh, uh our line we don't regulate it very very closely i mean everybody use their own best judgment but once we enter our building and again we're we're pretty small our quarters are pretty tight when you enter the building to order and get your barbecue it's uh mask are required and we're going to continue to to leave that in place at this time i mean everybody's kind of adapted we've had no problems uh again the barbecue family is just uh second to none as far as good quality people and we haven't had any, you know, like I said, any red flags or any problems with that, and we're going to leave that in place at this time.
0: Kerry, tell us about how your business was impacted. Uh, you know, we're, we've been 12 months into this pandemic here, uh, almost to the day here. Give us a sense of how your business changed March of last year.
4: Well, it, it was just kind of a, a overnight switch. And, when, you know, at first we were real curious just to see what kind of crowd we would have, and, and it was just overwhelming at how good it was when it first hit. And then the wife and I got to talking, and our schools had shut down and everything, and and 95% of our clientele is out of country, out of state, out of town. And, you know, with our schools shut down, we didn't want to be bringing the the people into our town, so at that time we made the decision to close uh, in March of last year, and we were closed uh, completely from March until November. Uh, all we focused on was our online shipping. It increased. We were fortunate enough to have that already in place since 2008 and it increased, uh, uh, dramatically really. And, you know, it was kind of like almost a Christmas rush again. Hmm. We had to, uh, you know, revamp and be able to keep up. And, uh, it's been that way kind of the whole time our online business has picked up and does well. I want to hear about that.
1: Carrie, I want to hear about. That. I know that I know that in the past you've had customers who fly in from Hong Kong just to get your barbecue. Um, <laughs> that's no joke. So, but now you have an online business, and I wonder how that has uh, how that's developed. I mean, I'm looking at your website, SnowsBarbecue.com, and just thinking about ordering a little brisket myself out here, and I'm in Berlin.
4: <laughs> well, again, it has been. We, like I said, we were blessed to already have that in place, being a one day a week uh venue we we had to have a place to go in order if we had anything left from day one and that's why i put the shipping in place and again from the pandemic hit it just uh increased and our our feedback and a lot of our customers i mean i don't know the percentage exactly but a repeat customers that order on a regular basis i mean we we manage it just like we do on saturdays quality is our our main concern and customer service and like I said, we're not, not real large. We're also on belly, which uh, you can get the same thing on our website. But uh, it's been great. Uh, I mean, as uh, far as quality, when you rewarm it in New York, you lose very little. And, you know, back to what you said, our customers are from all over the world, and that is, that's the case every Saturday. It's kind of like a, a festival one day a week. I mean, we have people from all over the world every Saturday, and we're just – truly blessed and like I said, the pandemic has
0: definitely
4: well, hit us, but we've been fortunate enough to make some changes and and handle it quite well.
1: Well we wish you the best, Carrie. Send the best to your family. And to Tootsie down there, and everybody in Lexington as well. Um, I'm so glad that you've survived uh, and and come out stronger on the other side of this. Well, hopefully we get to the other side of this. Carrie Bexley there, um, who runs Snows Barbecue, voted the best barbecue in Texas. And Texas is a big state, so that <laughs> That's is insane. a very, very big deal. Stay. Get over now to. Gene Shanzano, Bloomberg uh, politics contributor. She's also a professor at Iona to talk a little bit about this couple of trillion dollars we're about to pump into the U.S. economy. Um, Gene, what do you think? I mean, my first question about this uh, beyond, you know, where should they send my check is, is it going to be inflationary or are the deflationary forces so strong right now that uh, we shouldn't be worried about that?
5: I love how you said just a couple trillion dollars <laughs> give or take just right few. just a few and and I think that's really you know part of, of what we're all just looking at today which is it, it's difficult to tell people the size of this thing I think one point that really struck with me is that the Watson Institute had out a piece which said we spent in 20 years on the war on terror 5.4 trillion in the last year including this bill we spent 6 trillion on the coronavirus alone on this mm. pandemic So this is the largest standalone stimulus package in American history, obviously. So it's unprecedented in uh, Biden's, you know, arguably 50, 50 51st day in office. But to your point, that is the big question and the big debate is, is this thing going to trigger inflation? And I don't think we know. We've heard some people, even Democrats, say that it could and other people push back like uh, Janet Yellen, for instance. Um, So I don't think we know Um, if it just fills out out, the outpost gaps, it's going to be okay. But if it does trigger inflation, Jerome Powell has said he can deal with it. Uh, you know, I think we have to take a wait and see attitude on that at this point.
0: All right. So, Jeannie, from a political perspective, um, what does it mean that this bill is likely to be passed and signed probably today into law strictly on party lines? No bipartisanship whatsoever.
5: It means that despite the fact that six or seven out of 10 Americans, including majorities of Republicans, said they support this bill, the Republican Party is hanging together and saying not so fast. And we heard Liz Cheney and others say the big problem here is that. 90% of this bill, according to Republicans, has nothing to do with fighting the pandemic or restoring the economy. So they will point you to things, and I do think they have a point to a certain extent, like the expansion of the ACA. These have been long-time progressive Democratic uh, wishes. They've been able to do that under this bill. It may, according to the CBO, increase by about, add about $1.7 more to the insurance rolls. That's something Democrats have wanted. And when it's fascinating to me when republicans have made this charge about them democrats have said yeah and so what we absolutely are fulfilling our wish list of things so they you know this bill has been so popular democrats are happy to run on it and we're going to see joe biden out there tomorrow night with his first address to the nation he hasn't obviously in 50 days as you guys know better than i do even done a press conference yet but i think we're going to see him out doing something like that in the next few days as well
1: Gene, he can do whatever he wants. They can do whatever they want now. You know, forget about the other side. I mean, of course, there was talk about unity at the inauguration, but, you know, there's nothing unity about this. They're just going to roll over the Republicans. Does it matter?
5: It does matter. And it matters not just for, you know, people who don't like the bill. It matters for Democrats. Not only did Joe Biden promise bipartisanship, but it's a 50 50 Senate. You can't get anything done outside of reconciliation without 10 Republicans. And that's the big problem for him. Look, at he's talking about, a you know, something around a two, three trillion dollar build back better uh, program, including infrastructure. It's unclear if he can do that on reconciliation, maybe he can, but if he doesn't, he's going to need Republicans. And so my big question is, does he bring them on early and move it through with them? Or does he sort of put it on their lap and say, you know, support it or don't, we can go ahead without you. But we're talking about another huge spending bill, if not more, and that's not to even mention immigration, voting rights and the labor law that that the House passed yesterday.
0: Are you surprised? Yeah, let's talk about that, Janine, some of the, the other legislation that uh, this administration would like to get done probably sooner rather than later, and you mentioned a few areas. Is it surprising to you that with a, a president that has been so many years in the Senate, nobody knows the Senate and its workings better than Joe Biden, presumably, and then of course a Vice President who was just came out of the Senate and presumably has those current relationships. Are you surprised that they haven't been able to get any bipartisan support for this bill?
5: I am not surprised because no matter how much Joe Biden or, to your point, Kamala Harris, know and understand the Senate and they do, Biden arguably better than any president we've had in recent history, we have a structural divide in our system, which makes it very, very tough for any president to get bills through Congress, but particularly even when their party controls it. But this narrow control of a 50-50 makes it that much tougher. So I think my surprise was the other day when Jen Psaki said the president is not supporting still the filibuster reform or getting rid of the filibuster. I was a bit surprised she said that because I'm not sure how he intends to achieve the rest of this mammoth program he has promised to the American public in the absence of that kind of reform.
1: Well, I mean, you only want to get rid of the filibuster while you're in power, right? Well, that's and you, right. <laughs> and then you rue the day that you did it. Um, that's you know,
5: absolutely th- true. Be that, careful that, what you wish for. <laughs> exactly.
1: That's the kind of thing that they would feel pretty bad about if they lost the yes. majority. Jean, great talking to you. Hope we can have you back on again soon. Jean Chan, Zaino, you know, there is a professor at Iona. So you can take her class if you go there. But she's also a <laughs> Bloomberg politics contributor. So you can read her column if you come here. Um, It's going to be so fascinating to see how this plays out when it gets to the infrastructure part of it. Yeah, that's uh, going to be the big one,
0: Matt. I mean, that's going to be, um, you know, bigger numbers. uh, Presumably, it's infrastructure, so it should have some bipartisan support. Doesn't everybody like having bridges and tunnels built in their district? You would think so, but we'll have to see. We'll certainly have more on that coming up. This is Bloomberg.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul
0: Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.